You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Most of us remember exactly where we were and what we were doing 20 years ago yesterday. I was a college student walking through a large common area in Vincennes University. I remember the morning vividly as the place got quiet and someone turned up the large TV that was sitting in the corner of the room. Flight 11 had flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center and less than 20 minutes later, Flight 175 hit the South Tower as well. We were all stunned. Not even an hour later, after that, Flight 77 crashed into the west side of the Pentagon. And then we learned that another plane had been hijacked and was headed for the White House or the Capitol building. But this time, the plane's passengers fought back and they made the ultimate sacrifice. Four planes had become weapons. Three hit their targets. It was an incredibly emotional day for all of us because up until then, we had never experienced anything like that. Our sense of safety was destroyed and the world shifted just a few degrees to the left. It was a game changer. Immediately, the price of gas skyrocketed and never came back to hover around a dollar a gallon ever again. Full body scans became normal at every airport. The Patriot Act made it legal for our own government to monitor our emails, phone calls, bank records, credit reports, and even track our online activity without a warrant. And we gladly gave up those freedoms in the name of safety. Sure, some things went back to normal, but not everything. A lot didn't. And here we are 20 years later, and the world is shifting again. This global pandemic, recent events in Afghanistan, vaccine mandates, we find ourselves in yet another game changer. And we wonder, how will our American way of life look moving forward? And what freedoms will we gladly give up in the name of safety now? Sure, some things will go back to normal, but not everything will. Not everything will. Some things won't. So how do we, the church, the light of the world, the blood-bought bride of Christ, how do we respond when the world continues to remind us of its wickedness? When we look around and it feels like we're living in the book of Judges, where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, and we just keep spiraling further and further and further, what do we do? How do we respond to that when nothing is safe and we find ourselves surrounded by evil, suffering, and loss? As pilgrims, aliens, strangers, and exiles, we know that this home is not our forever home. We know that this is not where we belong, ultimately. But while we are here, right here, right now, what sort of people ought we to be? How should we live? Our text this morning is here to tell us. So please follow along as I read from 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What a text. What a text. But it doesn't end there. He goes on to say, but, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Consider this. A 100-watt incandescent bulb will typically last about 750 hours. 
feels like less, especially when they go out, or one goes out and all the others remain. A 25-watt bulb will last about 2,500 hours. A $1 bill will last approximately 18 months in circulation. And the average running shoe worn by the average runner on an average surface will last somewhere between 350 to 500 miles. Much longer if the pair belongs to me. <laughs> but seriously, if you just pick an object, any object in this fallen world, it doesn't take long for us to notice that it doesn't last forever. Nothing lasts forever. Everything decays. Everything falls apart. What's that old yarn that we all kept hearing as we were growing up? How many times have we heard the phrase, well, they just don't make it like they used to? They don't. They don't make it like they used to. It's true. Things break. Things fall apart. Things dissolve. It's all here today and it's gone tomorrow. And for the unbeliever, if this is all that you have, then that's a very depressing thought. But as believers, we have something far, far greater and far, far more substantial than the fleeting pleasures of this world, the things that are here today and gone tomorrow. We have a king. We have the king of kings who has promised to return and to clean house, to destroy all sin and death, to clothe us in immortality and to establish his throne, his eternal throne, here on the earth without corruption forever and ever with perfect peace, justice, and love. That's what we have to look forward to. That's our hope. That's what we long for. It's what we are waiting for even now. And that hope that hope should change us in a very dramatic and noticeable way. That shouldn't just be a little tidbit or a little piece of information that we tuck somewhere in the back of our brains, like, like that report that we did on our favorite animal back in the fifth or sixth grade. No, this needs to be something that, that changes our life. This needs to be a real truth, something that we, that we sink our teeth into, that we hold on to, that we never let go of. It should change us. If we stay focused on the task at hand and if we truly believe that God will do everything that he has said he will do, then we won't fall down when this world shifts. We won't, we won't stumble and fall and trip over ourselves every time there's a movement or something happens in the world. This morning we are going to look at three ways that the coming day of the Lord impacts the struggling Christian. Three ways that the day of the Lord should change us, should impact us in very dramatic and powerful ways. Tomorrow does affect today. So what sort of people are we to be until he comes back to bring us home? First of all, as we come to the end, as we move closer and closer to that day, we must live for Christ. We must live for Christ Look at verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Friends, Christ's likeness is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option. If you are a Christian, it's in the name. You are to be like Christ. Becoming more like Christ is your primary goal. It is your primary pursuit. If you are a Christian, a Christian without Christ's likeness is like an airplane without wings. It's worthless. It's useless. I mean, your, your life will never leave the runway. It is only as we pursue Christ that we find ourselves conform more and more into the image of Christ. It is only then that the Spirit lifts us up and makes us useful for the kingdom. Friends, the goal of your Christian life is to become like Christ. That's the goal. Jesus said so himself in Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, I want you to do what I do. Do what I do every day. Deny yourself and become more like me. We all love the promise of Romans 8.28. Anyone here have that memorized? Romans 8.28. It's wonderful. We love it. It's the crown jewel of the crown jewel chapter of the New Testament. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we all know that there's more to it than just that. 
The chapter doesn't end there. The letter doesn't end there. It doesn't stop with that. He goes on to describe what exactly it is that, that God's purpose in all of this is. If we've been called according to his purpose, then what is that purpose? And so what exactly have we been called? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So how can we confidently assert that an all-powerful, all-knowing creator God causes all things, even the worst of things, to work together for good? What's his end game? What's his goal? What is this all leading towards? Why does he do this in us? Verse 29 makes it abundantly clear that he foreknew us, that he foreknew you, that he predestined us, he predestined you to become the spitting image of Jesus Christ. Christ likeness is not an option. It is a predetermined will of God for every one of his children. We are called and commanded and expected to live for Christ. And specifically, we are reminded in 2 Peter 3 to live for Christ today because, why? Because the world is going to end tomorrow. It is. This isn't some cheesy movie that was made back in the 1990s where Will Smith punches an alien. No, this is for real. This is serious. The world is going to end tomorrow. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What things? What is he talking about? Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, the world as we know it has an expiration date. It will come to an end. Everything you love and cherish on this planet will someday go away. All of it. I hate, to, I hate to break it to you this morning, but your favorite restaurant, your favorite movie, your favorite music, ugh, I know that hurts. But it's all going to be exposed. And it's all going to pass away before God's awesome and terrifying judgment. We're talking ultimate destruction on a massive scale, something Hollywood would never be able to duplicate, even with today's technology. This is huge. A literal translation of the Greek says, since all these things are dissolving. Present tense. And you don't need to look very far to affirm that truth. Things are dissolving. In just a few weeks, I'll cross over into a new phase of life, my 40s. And all it takes is a mirror to remind myself that things are dissolving. <laughs> things are not getting better, are they? Nope. nope, thank you. I knew I would get at least one amen. But it's true. This world is plagued by destruction and decay. We aren't progressing like some would hope, like some would think. Things are getting worse, aren't they? Things are decaying. They're deteriorating. They're going away. So Peter asked the question, what sort of people ought we to be? If that's the case, if that is the state of affairs, if that's where we find ourselves today, what kind of people should we be? He then answers the question with two distinguishing characteristics that should govern the life and activity of every believer. These are things that should set us apart. When we talk about shining in the light or, or shining a light in the darkness, this is what we're talking about. This is what distinguishes us. This is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. If everything else is dissolving and the world as we know it is coming to an end, how should we live and how should we be different? Well, first of all, we should pursue holiness. We should pursue holiness. He says to move forward in lives of holiness, meaning every part of our lives Every aspect of our living should encompass a pursuit of holiness. It's a way of life. It's a repetitive habit. It's a common disposition of the believer. He's saying our lifestyle, our conduct, our habits, our reputation, our behavior, all of it should all be holy. Holy. 
Now that's a word that we don't hear very often anymore, unfortunately. Holy, it means to be consecrated, to be pure, to be set apart, to be perfect and worthy. And we find this mandate to pursue holiness all throughout the Bible. But let's just look at one section real quick here. Let's flip a few pages to the left to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And starting in verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Believer, holiness is not an option. It is a command. It is a mandate. It is an imperative for all of life. And this teaching has been passed down from generation to generation, and it encapsulates the very heartbeat of God's desire for his people. Ultimately, holiness is a forgotten doctrine in much of the church, but I pray that it would never be forgotten or ignored here. Not in this church, not in this fellowship of believers. Unfortunately, it's not just forgotten, it's purposefully ignored in so many churches today. Today, so much is accepted and affirmed in the name of Christian liberty and freedom. One has to wonder, where would the libertine preacher even begin to call his fellowship and the flock that God has entrusted to him to shepherd and to serve? How would he even begin to call those people to repentance, to see Christ formed in them, to deny themselves and to say no for the sake of holiness? Where do you start when anything can be excused and accepted in the name of God's glorious grace? Where do you start? Where do you stop? If sanctification is secondary and no longer necessary, you will bolt or collapse when things get tough. You won't get very far with your cross. Rather, you will stop following Jesus, and you will go back to following your heart. If you don't take that first step seriously of denying yourself and pursuing holiness every day. He says, be holy, for I am holy. Because how you think and where you go and what you do, it all matters to God. That's number one. We should pursue holiness. Number two, we should pursue godliness. Godliness. He says in lives of holiness and godliness, another forgotten word for godliness is the word piety. Piety. In 1776, the year of our nation's birthday, General Washington posted a notice for all his men to consider. I want you to hear this. It's interesting. This is what our first president told his troops. He said, speaking of himself in the third person, he said, the general is sorry to be informed that the foolish, wicked practice of profane cursing and swearing a vice hereto, therefore, little known in the American army, is growing in fashion. He hopes the officers will, by example, as well as by influence, endeavor to check it. But we can have little hope of the blessing of heaven on our arms if we insult it by the impiety of our folly. Added to this, it is a vice so mean and so low, without any temptation, that every man of sense and character detests and despises it, End quote. Can you imagine if such an announcement were to go out today? I think a few people would swear in response to that. And yet, we know that true piety, true godliness, is about so much more than just having a clean mouth. It is a strong desire to please God by becoming like God. Here's a hard question, a really hard question for you. When was the last time your desire to please God and to be like God trumped your desire to do something for yourself? To do something for the sake of sin, for a desire that you have. When was the last time you said no to sin and yes to the awesomeness of God? Or let me put it this way, do you respect God enough to obey him? Friends, our God is a God of infinite love and grace and mercy, and we are so thankful for that. Yes, 
but he is also a God of infinite power and majesty. And we cannot afford to act like spiritual babies or brats who comfortably sit in our filth and play in the dirt when he has commanded us to grow up and to take a shower. I love what Paul has to say about this in Titus 2. Let's turn there for a moment to Titus 2. Look at what he says, starting in verse 11. Titus 2. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, that glorious grace, that wonderful grace that we do not deserve. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, hallelujah, amen, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Did you catch that? The saving grace of God, this glorious, unmerited favor from heaven itself, This grace of God, it doesn't save us to leave us where we are, as he found us. Rather, it is this saving grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives until he appears in glory. And why did Jesus do all of this? Why did he give himself to save us? to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, Jesus did not hang on the cross so you could cling to the world. He went to purify his people, a people who belong to him and no one else, people who are zealous for good works, zealous to be like him, to not see his his death be in vain, to not trample under the Son of God, but to hold him in the highest regard, to follow him, to be like him. That is what true saving grace does. Charles Spurgeon once said, and I love this, so helpful. He said, the best morality in the world will not prove a man to be a Christian. But if a man does not have morality, it proves that he is not a child of God. That's something. And he's absolutely right. The best morality in the world will not save you. It contributes nothing to your salvation. It doesn't even prove that you're saved. I've known some very nice Mormons in my life, very moral people, but it doesn't grant them salvation. However, a man who does not have morality that does prove that that person is not a Christian. In other words, you can be moral and not be saved, but you cannot be saved without being moral. Because people who have been born again, born from above, who have had this work of grace brought to them, as Martin Luther called it, an alien grace, a grace from outside of ourselves that has been given to us. People who have received the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit, who have been regenerated from death to life, who have become new creations in Christ, those who have been truly saved by grace, they have been given a heart of flesh to replace their heart of stone, and they will willingly, they will want to trust and obey their Savior as they embrace him and reject the world. They will, because that is what true Christians do. They die to self, and they live for Christ. Peter is simply asking in our text, why would you embrace the world as it dissolves, as it disintegrates on its way to judgment when you have been called to something so much better, so much better than what we have here Look, this present earth, this present age, the, this wicked and depraved generation, it has nothing for us. Absolutely nothing. So don't hold on to it with both hands. And as a side note, don't try to evangelize this lost world on this lost world's terms either. 
Don't do that. None of us have been commissioned by God to reach the culture by being like the culture. None of us. And despite what you might hear elsewhere, Jesus didn't do that either. Today, it's very popular to hear that Jesus ate and drank with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. So doesn't that provide some justification for us to become regulars at the bar? Or or doesn't that give us some justification to insert ourselves into the world a little bit further, a little bit deeper? Friends, that is a ridiculous argument. Of course Jesus ate and drank with sinners, but he never became one. He never became one. He never became a prostitute to win prostitutes. He never became a drunk to win drunks. And he never became a liar or a thief or a greedy politician. May Ganoito. He is the spotless Lamb of God. He never sinned and he never allowed the culture to dictate his message or his manner either. As Christians, our goal is not to be more like them but for them to become more like us as we become more like him in both holiness and godliness. Because Christ's likeness is what being a Christian is all about. It's all about Christ. So what sort of people ought we be? We should be those who live for Christ. Pure and simple. That's number one. Number two, as we come to the end, we must also look for Christ. Look for Christ. We should live for Christ and look for Christ. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The word that Peter uses here for waiting, it means to expect eagerly. It means to wait for with anticipation. There is a sense of urgency here. So while the day of the Lord is absolutely terrifying for the wicked, it is something that we as believers, as the chosen ones of God, as those who have been redeemed, who have been foreknown and predestined, who have received this grace of God, it is something that we look forward to. And even though we can't make it come any sooner, we hasten it within our hearts. We long for it to come sooner. And we want to see Jesus make an end to sin and death. We want him to succeed where the first Adam failed, to rule the earth and to subdue it. We want him to wipe our tears, to fill our hearts, and and, and to carry us home. We want that. We desire it. Believers look forward to the day when our king returns. Because with him comes a washing and a purifying of all sin and all of the consequences of sin. They are dealt with once and for all. Not just in our hearts, but in heaven and earth as well. You see, his return affects everything. Everything. Nothing will remain unaffected when Jesus comes back. This is something that even creation itself looks forward to. In Romans 8, again, that crown jewel of the New Testament, we're told that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not because it chose to or wanted to, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, not for annihilation, not for an end to it all, but groaning together in the pains of childbirth, to, to see something birthed out of all of this, to see a renewal, a regeneration, a, a restoration of things, even until now. So even the earth, all of creation, is eagerly longing for Christ's return. And that includes our glorification. Because just as we brought corruption into this world, Christ is going to purify everything and he's going to set creation free through our glorification. So our hope becomes creation's hope as, as it is all tied together and everything is affected. Christians long for the day and creation longs for the day. But I'll tell you who doesn't. The unbeliever. The unbeliever doesn't, doesn't care simply because they don't believe. But that doesn't change the fact that the day of the Lord is coming. And when it arrives, 
It will not go well for those who love this corrupted world as it sits today. Peter says, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Remember, he made a promise to never destroy the earth with water ever again. He conveniently left out fire because a day is coming when he will destroy the earth again by the same word in the same way. Only this time it won't be wet. It's going to be very hot. Purification is painful. It's painful. And it is for this reason, as much as it pains me to say, it is for this reason I don't believe there will be Star Wars in heaven. There won't be. Sometimes I jokingly tell a friend or two here and there, you need to see this or that movie. Or you need to read this book now or listen to this album now because I promise it won't survive the fire when Jesus returns. Just a couple of nights ago, I was talking with someone who hasn't seen Ghostbusters. And I immediately called them to repentance. So don't worry. <laughs> I'm sure that they're going to catch up here sometime if the Lord tarries before, before we have lunch. Now, I know that's obviously the wrong attitude to have. It's a joke. And I hope you realize that. Because in the end, who cares? Who cares about the appetizer and values the appetizer more than the entree? I mean, these things are dissolving. And I promise you, 10 million years from now, try to wrap your, try to wrap your brain around that. 10 million years from now, none of us will be holding on to the childhood joy that we receive from watching some movie. None of us will. Because our hope doesn't lie in the here and now. It doesn't lie in earthly entertainment. It doesn't lie in what we have or what we can afford. And honestly, we can't afford to keep a, a firm grip on the things here of earth because they will not be here forever. All we have is Christ. Christ and Christ alone. Our fulfillment is not found in technology or creature comforts or the latest fad or, or anything else that we could possibly see or touch or experience or claim for our own. So we need to enjoy what we do have here with an open hand. My wife is a purger. I am not. I'll admit that now. I hate throwing stuff away. She somehow finds it therapeutic. It's easy for her. There are times when I walk through the door in the evening and I just know, I can sense it, something is missing. <laughs> she has purged something from the house. There's just a, a disturbance in the force, my last Star Wars reference. I can tell. And yet, being married to that woman, being married to a perjurer, has been a good thing for me in many ways. For one, we aren't hoarders and our house is not disgusting because of it, and I'm thankful for that. But more importantly, it reminds me that the stuff of earth is just stuff. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's not worth holding on to. It's not worth crying over. It's not worth investing so much of yourself into. It's here and it's gone. Sometimes by the time I get home, it's gone. <laughs> Regardless, we can't afford to allow anything that we have here to compete with our love and our affection for Christ. We can't. Nothing else is more important. He is most important. Peter says choosing the world over Christ is a bad investment. It's the worst investment because it will cost you more than your money. It will cost you your life. The unbeliever not only lives without hope in the here and now, but they have something far worse waiting for them when Christ returns. I know we've looked at it a lot in the past, but it's worth looking at again. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As I entered into ministry, I had no idea I would spend so much time in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But it is so helpful and so good and it relates so well to what we are studying this morning. Here Paul is taking a moment to encourage the believers at Thessalonica. And these believers, as we will see here in a couple of weeks when we start our series after men's retreat in 1 Thessalonians, they suffered intense persecution from day one. I mean, you've got kidnappings, you've got 
government mandates and the threat of fines and all kinds of stuff hanging over these people's heads. And yet they endure so well. But they're suffering. And so Paul takes this opportunity to give them some spiritual reinforcement. He does that by reminding them that the day of the Lord is coming. To look ahead, to get their eyes off of their present circumstances and to remember their hope, the future. Look at what he says, starting in verse 6. He says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. According to verses 8 and 9, those who do not know God and those who do not obey God will pay the ultimate penalty for their sins. They will pay for their own sins. That's a terrifying thought. These are terrifying verses. I can tell you one thing. If we honestly carried the weight of this truth with us everywhere we went, we would never struggle with evangelism again. Ever. We would take every opportunity, every divine appointment, every circumstance, because we know that the day of the Lord is coming. And we know that it carries a tremendous promise for the redeemed, but it also carries a terrifying punishment for the lost. So church, what sort of people ought we to be? We need to be those who live for Christ and those who look for Christ. And then finally, as we come to the end here, we must long for home. Long for home. That's number three. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A common misconception is that our eternal destiny lies somewhere in the current heavens. That the place that so many of us will go after we die, that that will be our eternal resting place. And that is not the case. I mean, don't get me wrong. The current heaven is great. It's wonderful. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is far better by far. But the current heaven is still an intermediate state. It is not our final destination. Ultimately, we look forward to something far greater than what our, our beloved saints who are there now, than what they are experiencing. Let's look at one more passage, one last passage this morning. Turn to Revelation 21. Let's go to the end of the book, towards the end of the book. In Revelation 21. And in Revelation 20, we have the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth, followed by Satan's defeat and the great white throne of judgment. After all those things are done, God then ushers into the eternal state. We leave the intermediate state and we enter into the eternal. And look at what he says here. Look at how he describes it. At the very beginning of chapter 21, he begins by saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what is he seeing here? Well, he's standing on the earth, and much like we just read in 2 Peter 3, this earth has been destroyed. Much like how it was destroyed once with water, it is now being reserved to be destroyed with fire. So this earth will be destroyed with fire. But it's still here, and he's still on it, and he describes it as this earth, but without seas, right? Without the ocean. So three-quarters of the earth landmass has been opened up. There are still large bodies of water, I'm sure. In fact, I know there are because he describes that a little bit later on. But the earth has changed. It's different. It's not the way that it was. 
And what does he see? He sees this new heaven and this new earth. The two realms of existence, as we know them now, they come together to form a new heaven and a new earth, the unseen world and the seen world. And it's that new combination that will become our forever home. Men and angels and creatures of every kind will worship together. They will worship the king together in perfect harmony. We have every reason, every reason to look forward to this new heaven and this new earth. Because look at the next verse. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. This is the home that we long for. This is our eternal destiny. This is why we aren't comfortable here. It's because we have something far greater, far better that we are looking forward to, that we are longing for. Yeah, there are times when we get comfortable. I do it too. We get comfortable with this world. We feel like settling in until we check the news or tragedy happens to us and to our family. And friends, it always, it always happens. We can't avoid it. Nobody lives a particularly blessed or charmed life. All it takes is a shooting or a bombing or a murder or a rape or a drug-related crime or simply the world shifting as the game changes. That's all it takes. Look, you know that this world is sick. This world is dark. But a day is coming when God will wipe the whole thing clean. And we long for that day. Imagine a world without any of those things. Without any of them. Because God has promised us a new heaven and a new earth, one in which righteousness dwells. Don't miss the significance of what Peter is pointing out here as he finishes up, as he wraps up his final death row epistle, as he is about to face death himself. For today, all we know is sin and grace. But tomorrow and for all of eternity, we will live in a land of pure righteousness, a land where there is no sin and there is no grace, just pure righteousness from God. The earth will be full of truth, not lies, life, not death, love, not hate. Try to imagine that for a moment, a world without pain, sorrow, heartache, disappointment, despair, loneliness, suffering, anxiety, or depression, a world without sin, a world of pure righteousness. God has promised the very best, the absolute best for those who love him and keep his commandments to the very end. I really appreciate how Dr. Steve Lawson illustrates this point in his book, Heaven Help Us. It's been a while since I've shared this with you. It's worth sharing again. Listen to this. He writes, There will be nothing unclean around us, we will live in a world spiritually clean from the pollution of all sin. No abortion clinics, no divorce courts, no brothels, no bankruptcy courts, no psychiatric wards, and no treatment centers. No pornography, no dial porn, no teen suicide, no drive-by shootings, no racial tensions, and no prejudice. There will be no misunderstandings, no injustice, no depression, no hurtful words, no gossip, no hurt feelings, no worry, no emptiness, and no child abuse. There will be no wars, no financial worries, no heart monitors, no rust, no perplexing questions, no false teachers, no financial sources, no hurricanes, no bad habits, no decay, no locks. We will never need to confess sin. Never need to apologize again. Never need to straighten out a strained relationship. Never have to resist Satan again. Never have to resist temptation. Never. Church, I cannot wait to go home. I can't wait to go home. 
And here's the question that Peter wants to know. The question that he asks all of us, even now, today, from the grave, that the Holy Spirit is asking us through his word. Christian, if this is what you long for, if you want a final address on the new earth, and one that, that righteousness dwells, where there is no sin, where there is no decay, where there is no pain and heartache, then friend, what sort of person should we be today? How should you live today? What kind of a person should you be now? How attached are you to this dissolving world? Is there anything, anything at all that this sinful system has to offer that even comes close to your hope of glory? Friends, Peter is bringing this up at the very end of his last letter for a reason. Because tomorrow does affect today. And we cannot afford to lose sight of eternity. Personal holiness and piety matter today. Because those are the things that God has designed to last. Those are the things that will live on, that will carry on into eternity. Everything else is sifting sand. Everything else is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. It is as that famous poem by C.T. Studd concludes. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Friend, are you living for Christ? Are you looking for Christ? Are you longing for home? I know there's a lot going on right now. The world is shifting. We all feel disoriented. We're all trying to keep our balance. Everyone's worried about tomorrow. The one person who shouldn't be is the confident Christian. Because we know that this world will not last forever. We know that Christ is more than enough. And we know that the day of the Lord is coming. The Holy Spirit has told us through Peter what to do. We just need to do it. We just need to obey. So friend, are you ready to see your Savior? Because he can return at any moment. And when he does, what will he see? How will he find you? Will he find you pursuing holiness and godliness? Becoming more like him? Are you going to be excited to see him or are you going to be ashamed because you spent so much time here focusing on the wrong things? Or worse, will dread fill your heart because you knew the truth but you failed to live it? I pray that all of us, all of us, would magnify Christ so much so in our own lives that he would become everything. That we wouldn't care for these other things that we would stop even joking about these other things, that we would only care about Christ and the things that are eternal, to know Jesus and to make him known. This dissolving world has nothing for us. So let's be the people of God that God has called us to be. One of my favorite hymns of the faith is Jesus, I, my cross have taken. And as we begin to turn our hearts to the Lord's table this morning. Let me remind you of the final verse. It says, Hasten on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before me, God's own hand shall guide me there. Soon shall close my earthly mission. Swift shall pass my pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise. Until that eternal day arrives, friends, let's live for Christ. Let's look for Christ and let's long for home. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for these reminders as we 
So we have taken this weekend to look back, to remember so much evil and wickedness here in the world, and what transpired here on our shores 20 years ago. And as we have seen the world shift and change so much over that time, God, we long, we long for you to come, to take us home, to bring that new heaven and a new earth. Lord, we long for you to do away with sin once and for all. God, would you work in our hearts. May we never forget this truth. As the world shakes and teeters and totters and, and those around us fall to the floor, may we be confident in your truth. Give us the strength we need to bear up under the weight of what's ahead, to stand firm, to stand strong for your truth as testaments of your grace and your glory. Lord, work in our hearts. Pour cement into our faith. And may we be a people who are holy and godly in every way. Help us, God. Make us more like Christ. And use us to reach this lost and dying world around us. They are running out of time. Whereas we long and hasten the day of the Lord, they have every right to be terrified, to be so afraid of it. And many of them just don't even know. So God, help us. Give us divine appointments. Encourage us. And give us everything that we need through your word to win as many from this lost and perishing world as you would have. We love you so much. Thank you again for your truth in your name. Amen.